Thank you for joining me for part two of my conversation with my professor, Dr. Emilio Zamora. In this episode, Dr. Zamora expands upon his ideas of the role of the public intellectual and why it is so important for Mexican-American and African-American scholars to go beyond the campus and be involved in our communities. Welcome to the Empowerment Zone with Ramona Houston, where we zone in on black and brown relations and our journey to empowering our communities. Leading by example, Dr. Zamora doesn't just talk the talk, he walks the walk. In our discussion, Dr. Zamora shares his work in Texas in the campaign for the inclusion of ethnic studies into the classroom. Impactful indeed. Enjoy our conversation. All the work that I've done, the research and the writing has placed me in a very fortunate uh, position that many of us are in, including you, Ramona, and that is, of course, that we have this awesome responsibility with privileges as, as writers and, and uh, authors and, and teachers and professors that most of our people don't have. Mm-hmm. Our responsibility to speak up are, are greater because we have been taught to write and to speak and we've developed those abilities. So um, I've used my position as a university pr- professor in Mexican-American history and Texas history as a platform to work in the community as some people call a public intellectual. That is, I've engaged the larger society, particularly my own community in advancing ideas that I've learned from history uh, on this movement for social justice. So one of the things that I've done, and we've talked about this, you've asked me to talk about my work in the campaign for ethnic studies in the state of Texas, which involves basically going before the state board of education, particularly, but also the state legislature. But when we've gone and given testimony and argued for including more material in the standard curriculum on African-Americans and Mexican-Americans and indigenous people and Asian people and women, uh, we've been successful in this campaign. It's involved a lot more going to the press, organizing rallies and marches to impress our, uh, to, to make an impression on the members of the Board of Education But in the process, uh, we've been able to convince the State Board of Education to adopt courses on Mexican-American studies, African-American studies, indigenous studies, and Asian and Pacific Islanders. During these times when when, uh, the conservatives have have taken initiatives against us uh, in various ways, uh, we have, and I think they've done it in part because we've been successful enforcing officials like members of the State Board of Education who include us to a greater extent in the standard curriculum and to adopt courses that then teachers can teach in the public schools if they wish to teach them. 
we've not only gone with to the State Board of Education making an argument for inclusion and in the development of new courses, but we've also developed curriculum in this statewide campaign for ethnic studies. And uh, we have also organized workshops to prepare teachers to develop, to use the curriculum and to convince the administrators in the schools to allow them to teach these courses that they can now teach. So my work as a historian, again, has given me the opportunity to then um, go back to my communities, we used to say in the 70s, and offer my services to create a better world, particularly for our young people in the schools. As you know, the standard curriculum um, has not included us. Alonso Perales, for example, is not in the standard curriculum for the state of Texas. And Jose de la Luz Hines is barely mentioned. In other words, teachers are not encouraged to teach our history and our, our general experiences. They're not allowed to talk, tell our children, African-Americans and Mexican-Americans, anything about their history, the, the, the obstacles to the advancement of their communities and the heroic efforts by many people from our communities to seek social justice and to advance our interests. I think this is really critical. I have had so many students in my classes at the university tell me that people that are taking classes in Mexican-American history tell me, asking me, why is it that I have to wait until I get here to know anything, to find out anything about myself and my community? What's going on? Well, I tell them, I tell them. <laughs> the people that get elected to the State Board of Education have not deemed it necessary to include much about Mexican-Americans and African-Americans and women. This is after the large volume of work that we've produced since 1970, 71, 72, much was published before, but a lot more has been published in 71, 72. Despite that, we see that the curriculum, the standard curriculum in places like Texas lags far behind the, the well-known and established record of Mexican-American and African-American indigenous history and women's history. There is no excuse. It may be very well the case that the members of the State Board of Education are not reading these materials so that they don't know. But now that we've gone before them and told them what they're doing and what they're not doing, they now know, like the great book tells us, you may not have known before now, but now you know. <laughs> so from this point on, you have no excuses. That's a powerful argument. It's, an, it's a real argument. It's a truthful argument. So uh, we're doing so many other things, but I just wanted to underscore the fact that uh, many of us uh, do not say put in the designated areas the areas of life is designated us to, to, to work and live, many of us have uh, made a conscious decision to move out of our offices and our classrooms and into our communities. And in my case, and in my wife's case, who I think uh, your listeners were here, will hear later, have been very involved in developing curriculum and making sure that the standard curriculum includes the curriculum we're developing, 
By the way, one exciting curriculum, curricular area are the relations between African-Americans and Mexican-Americans in our history. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know that there have been differences among our leaders mm -hmm. and even political divisions, but there are also, we have also witnessed really important and um, inspiring instances of cooperation. Uh, much like in the student movement, we have independently developed a sense of the reality in our lives and in our history, but we often come to the point of unity around the major concerns with inequality. Uh, let me just give you one example. In 1943-44, in 1941, President Roosevelt established a Fair Employment Practice Committee, the forerunner of the modern civil rights movement. But this was uh, designated for in, in the area of employment, which basically argued you cannot discriminate on the basis of, uh, of race and national origin when uh, during the war, um, when hiring people, and of course, they were discriminating left and right against minority people to the point that the African-American leadership um, threatened to march on Washington in 1941. And as a result of that threat, Roosevelt established the Equal Employment Opportunity, not the, no, no, uh, this agency to investigate and enforce a policy of non-discrimination in employment. Immediately, Carlos Castaneda, the director of the office in Dallas, received complaints from the refineries in, in the Gulf Coast from African-Americans and Mexican-Americans who claimed that there was hiring, uh, uh, wage, and upgrading discrimination. The, the superintendents of the uh, most of the 11 or 12 refineries and the union uh, chiefs agreed. Uh, agreed that there was discrimination against folks. There's either, I, I even found uh, records in which the companies and the union heads, the heads of unions agreed that Mexicans and African-Americans were only supposed to be hired in the unskilled jobs as janitors and bus drivers and cleaners of the vats. So when Carlos Castañeda went to Houston to investigate the complaints, he met with representatives of NAACP, representatives of LULAC, and um, there were also representatives of the Mexican consulate office. And this is what they agreed upon. They agreed that Carlos Casallera should negotiate an end to discrimination in the refineries on the basis of the, of the Mexican-American complaints. My first conclusion was that discrimination against blacks was so deep seated with these racial ideas that they, it made sense to go with the Mexicans because the Mexicans are like the middle group mm -hmm. that they, they can go under and around the racial strictures because they're classified as whites. That was my first conclusion. But then I found a record in which uh, Casañeda and others gave another explanation. The Mexican government was interve intervening in the internal affairs of the US, arguing that discrimination against Mexicans and, and African-Americans and others was unconstitutional. In other words, the Mexican-American and the African-American 
complainants against the Shell Refinery in 1943-1944 recognized that the Mexicans had something they did they did not have that the African Americans did not have. They had a Mexican lobby, mm-hmm. and so that that's pretty important that these workers and their their civil rights representatives understood that they had to work together with what they had. And what they had is a a moral argument by African-American leaders, one of the major arguments against racial discrimination. But Mexicans were bringing something new to the table and they all recognized that. And what they brought is that the possibility that the Mexican government would intervene in this case against Gulf and Shell. And in fact, the Mexican government did intervene. But that's another story. The point is that there's numerous instances from the Underground Railroad to Mexico to this instance that I just uh, described, numerous others where African-Americans and Mexican-Americans come to the point of agreement and cooperation. And our children need to learn that as well. They not only need to learn about um, Ms. Hamer, or Alonso Perales and the inspiring work that they did. But they need to know about how we cooperated with each other. (laughs) That's not to deny that there's differences among us, but to underscore that there's a possibility of union, unity, and advancing together in a more effective manner against the racial edifice that has been the evil, one of the major evils in American history. Dr. Zamora, I mean, (laughs) this is incredible, the information that uh, you have shared uh, today, Uh, your research on two uh, individuals who have made a significant contribution, not only to the state of Texas, but to uh, our, our country. And, and world, when you look at the work in the United Nations. Um, and you also talked about your work of going in what I call that tradition of uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, of not only being an intellectual, but also being in the community, that there is such a thing that we are also, you know, developing our theories, but we're also practicing what we what we study. So that combination of theory and practice. And then um, your work in terms of the campaign for ethnic studies in Texas and how you talked about the development of courses, the argument for inclusion, the development of curricula, and your uh, creating workshops to teach teachers how to teach uh, ethnic studies. And then lastly, the examples of uh, the relationship between the African-American and Mexican-American communities in Texas and how we have, we we need to get rid of that myth that we have not, but that we have actually worked together to create social change, which is all about my research uh, in in showing uh, Black-Brown relations and the success of that. So... I totally agree with you that people need to know that we have the African-American and and Mexican-American communities have worked together. So um, 
could you give us some advice uh, in terms of where you see, like you talked about the legacies of individuals, you talked about some of the legacies of uh, impactful organizations in our communities, such as LULAC and the NAACP. Where do you see the movement going? What are the lessons, to your point, the lessons learned? Where do we need to move from here to accomplish um, the equal rights? And I don't, I don't just wanna talk about equal rights, but really moving the African-American and Mexican-American communities forward in order to make a more perfect union. Well, the, the, you know, I've already pointed out and insinuated uh, that recognizing the instances of cooperation, I think, uh, um, encourages more cooperation in the future, which I think is critical. It's no accident that these kinds of historical experiences, thinking about cooperation, have been left out of history. That is, the possibility of unity have been kept from us, um, suggesting that the possibility of unity is, should be one of the most uh, important things as we move forward. Uh, it is not being denied to us for nothing. I think people that deny this history understand the power of unity among folks that share so much. And the other thing that is even more fundamental to that is that, uh, you know, when I talk about history, I like to think about the values that these folks and organizations are promoting. And uh, the secular form or the golden rule is worth what is at the bottom of all of these social movements. Um, you, you treat others as you would expect them to treat you, which means the, the, the fundamental purpose of humans in, in, on earth. Our, our, and world religions agree to this, on this, and we've secularized this lesson in life. And that is we need to recognize each other's worth. That's the purpose of life. And we should then act accordingly. Once we recognize each other's equal worth, then we need to act to ensure that everybody is treated as equals. That secular form of the golden rule is cooperation, mutualism, reciprocity, though, and social understanding and social consciousness. Those are the lessons in our history that have um, demonstrated themselves in, in instances of unity, uh, unity of ideas, unity of action. Again, it's no accident that that part of our history has been denied us because I think there's an understanding that that kind of unity is what gives change great possibility for all of us. So we're not only Americans in the full constitutional sense of the word, but we're also uh, good Americans in that uh, spiritual sense of being of equal worth. 
that's who we are. We aspire to to great, um, we look high in heavens for inspiration. We look deep into our consciousness to guide us in, in political action for equal rights. The social movement speaks to the best in us and human being, as human beings, we're not only working for our rights, we're working for the salvation of the Republic, not only for the improvement of the Republic, the salvation of the Republic. As many, as many of our leaders have said, these movements are as much are as important to the future of the nation as they are to the rights of the people. If we cannot live up to the principles that define us in egalitarian terms, so what's the use of continuing this experiment that we call the Republic? So we're talking in fundamental terms when we talk about exercising our rights and fighting for our rights as peoples. Uh, and it, it involves not only African-Americans and Mexican-Americans, but many others. And so I feel that I've been divinely inspired and, and with the help of my parents and the very special experiences that I've had to, to work for social change that can bring, uh, that can uh, assure people they're God-given and constitutionally Guaranteed rights. I know you're a big advocate for higher education. So could you tell us what school or schools did you attend? What were your majors and degrees? And what strategy would you give students today to ensure that they're successful in college? I've attended a four-year institution in South Texas called Texas A&I University. Now it's called A&M in Kingsville. And then I attended UT Austin. I've worked all over the country, always associated with Mexican-American studies. My advice to students is that they, is that they embrace the process of uh, developing their sense of who they are. They need to pause like all of us should, regardless of age, but particularly at this very important juncture in their lives when they're leaving homes and becoming independent, they need to sit down. Students need to sit down and be very frank with themselves about who they are and who they wanna be. Uh, some people say that we're wired to be self-centered. I don't believe that. I think, I think we're wired to do good by others. So if we wanna really um, become who we have been intended to be all along, we need to go through this exercise of self-examination and make decisions. Like, you know, my mom and dad taught me to be socially responsible. Yes, that's a good value. I will continue with that. What does that mean in my life as I pursue this kind of major and, and pursue this kind of career? So. You need to pause, self-examine, and make some conscious decision about the direction you want your life to head. And, and you should do it in, in, as you develop your own networks of people that you trust and that care for you. Surround yourself with the right kind of people. Research has shown that even in instances when parents guide 
their children in the right and proper way. All of that can go out the window if a, if a friend with a different kind of orientation influences the, the, the young man or the young woman. Peer influence can trump family guidance, parental guidance. So surround yourself with people that you respect, that you care for, that care for you. And always in your moments where you reflect and decide who you want to be, decide who you want to be with. <laughs> um, don't be stupid, like my dad used to say. Don't hang out with the wrong people. Your conscience will always tell you who the right people are. The wrong people always cause confusion, uncertainty. The good people will always be assuring and will present themselves clearly as who they are. So that's the other thing. Surround yourself with the right kinds of people. And the other th the, the last thing that I would suggest, you belong wherever you are. The uh, sovereignty of the individual reigns above everything. You have a right to be who you want to be. You have a right to belong wherever you want to belong. You have that right. Don't ever let anyone uh, undermine that confidence that you can have, the, the confidence that is necessary for you to be successful in uh, uh, organizing your life, in making the right decisions about your career, and the community that you want to build around you, including your family. That would be my last piece of advice. Love this advice. While you're in college, make sure you discover who you are and who you want to be. Take that time for self-examination. Make sure you develop your network and surround yourself with people who are good for you and affirm who you are. In essence, that means decide who you want to be and who you want to be with. I love that quote. And then lastly, know that you belong. No matter where you are, you are deserving to be able to sit at the table. Thank you, Ramona, for making it much more clear than I could have. <laughs> I, I, love, I love this interview. Dr. Zamora, my former professor, always my professor, I want to say thank you so much for this incredible interview. It has been a pleasure to have you on the Empowerment Zone, and I welcome you back anytime. God bless you, and God bless the Empowerment Zone. Thank you, Ramona. A special thank you to the incredible team of the Empowerment Zone. Terry Gully, theme song, NADWorks, digital support, and of course, our featured guest, 